Isaiah chapter number 1. Isaiah chapter number 1. I'm going to do my best to read the scriptures. But somewhere along the way this week, I have misplaced my reading glasses. And I've looked all over. So if I stand back about three foot from the pulpit to read, y'all just ignore me tonight. Isaiah chapter 1, and we want to read down in verse number 21 through the end of the chapter. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse number 21. The Bible says, How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murders. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on mine enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees, which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender. And the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. I want to preach momentarily on this thought, the rise and fall of a people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you in prayer. God, I pray that, Lord, we might read your word. Lord, that as you speak to our hearts, Lord, may, uh, Lord, we get, uh, Lord, gain the warnings that Israel faced, Lord, and the mistakes they made. God, may we learn from it. Lord, may you cause us to guard our hearts and our walk with you, Lord, that we may keep from, Lord, turning astray from your ways. Lord, may you speak to us tonight through your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Tonight, there is no doubt, there is, it is unmistakable that the book of Isaiah, um, especially here in the first part, was written uh, by a Jew and to the Jews. And so I think that we would be amiss to read this without noticing that who the, who the intended audience was for. And uh, although it is in the Old Testament and it was written to the Jews, I, I believe that there is a verse of Scripture that says that God changes not. And although this might have been written to the Jews, there is insight that we can gain from reading the Old Testament that we understand the mind and the nature of God. And it is important that um, 
we understand that. There are those who would say that reading the Word of God is not even necessary, per se, as long as you do right, because the Holy Spirit will guide us. And although the Holy Spirit does guide us, we are commanded to study the Word of God. And I believe it is important that we understand, even in Isaiah, in a book that is written to Jews, that uh, to the nation of Israel, that you and I, in the 21st century, uh, we can still uh, read God's Word, and it gives us insight into God, who God is. Uh, our, our love for God should demand that we seek His face. Just as I am married to my wife, and because of that, I desire to get to know her. I want to know about her and who she is. And as a believer, we should desire to do the same thing with God. We should desire to know Him and who He is. And much of the Old Testament, again here in Isaiah, is, is uh, no exception to that. Although written to it, the nation of Israel, it gives us insight into who God is and His ways. On this passage of Scripture, the Bible particularly is dealing with the rise or the fall and the rise of Israel. But, but I want to look specifically at um, the, the rise and fall of people because I do believe that although uh, what is written here is directed at Israel, I believe the principles from God are still the same. They do not change even for you and I. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse number 21. Read that again with me. He says, how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Really to understand the fall and the rise of a people, which I believe is applicable to you and I in our current society, I want to examine two things, the fall and then again the rise of the restoration of it. The first thing we see here in verse number 21 is that we find that there was a denial of truth that happened. Here in the scriptures, we find that the Bible references the actions of Jerusalem particularly and the people of Israel. It says the faithful city, which is Jerusalem, has become a harlot. This term, harlot, is used throughout Scripture, and harlotry is common in that it references a, a denial or a, um, a unloyalty to God, just as harlotry would be inside of marriage. We find here that Jerusalem had committed harlotry by forsaking God and turning to others. As a result, righteousness had departed and murder had taken its place. They had denied the truth of God. They had forsaken the truth of God and had turned to lies. And, as because, and because of it, because they forsook justice, the Bible says that the city was now full of murders. Uh, I, I'm not trying to use replacement theology and say that... Uh, that we have replaced Israel or that America has replaced Israel, but yet we can see that people really do not change, do they not? You go back to Bible times, and here we read of Jerusalem and Israel, and yet you look at our own nation, our own society, and is this not what we see transpiring? In the news this very day, we see that uh, there was riots and murders throughout Atlanta protesting police just last night while we slept. 
Our society has forsaken truth. We have uh, been played the harlot to God. We have forsaken him and, and turned to the world and, and, and gods of ourselves. We have made ourselves false God through television and social media and through wealth and through possessions. And by doing so, we have denied the truth of God's eternal word. You have to look no further than the comments that we see in society. We use terms now such as your truth, my truth, our truth, but there is only one truth, and that is truth itself. Truth does not change or become false or or more true or less true based upon your personal opinion. Truth is concrete, and I'm thankful for that. Yet Israel denied truth. And anytime we see a fall of a society, you'll see that just as it was here in Jerusalem's case, it began with the denial of truth. In Micah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate, who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. It says those who hate good and love evil, and yet... Go on and do horrible things. We claim to love righteousness. We claim to love justice and truth. And yet corruption has run rampant in our nation, in our societies, in our homes. Denial of truth. To say it but not believe it, to say we believe it but not practice it, to proclaim it but not let the truth of God reign inside our hearts and our lives. To truly deny the truth, not just in words but in actions and in deeds, denial of truth. The second thing we can see here is in Isaiah 1, verse number 22. It says, your silver has become dross and your wine mixed with water. Silver become dross and wine mixed with water. I won't go into the process of uh, refining silver in Bible times, but they would take uh, silver and, and it would mostly be an iron ore, and they would bring it in, they would crush it and grind it and heat it up and, and try to melt out the silver, and there would be contaminants, sometimes copper and other irons or other minerals in the, in, inside the ore, and if there were other impurities, as they would try to refine it, um, there would be so much dross that would contaminate the silver that it was not usable. They literally would have to discard the silver because it was too contaminated. Then the Lord follows it up here and says, and your wine mixed with water. It was no longer pure. One drop of water into a container of wine would dilute every drop of wine within the container. Every bit was diluted by every drop of water. 
And so we find that there was a contamination that transpired. And so the first part of the fall is that there is a denial of truth. But the second aspect is there is an acceptance of sin. Where we accept the dross or we accept the, the diludedness of purity. And, and we find that sin becomes to become acceptable in our eyes. That is the truth of the day and the hour in which we live. Things that we were thought uncomprehendable 15, 20 years ago are now just not accepted and, and promoted within the world, but many churches are promoting the very th same things. Sin has become acceptable. We've accepted it. We've said it's all right. I can handle it. Sin's all right, and what the problem is is when we become so infiltrated with sin, and sin consumes our lives and our societies and our minds, that we become full of dross and of no good, of no use. I wonder, is that who we are? Has sin become acceptable regardless of what the Bible says have we said it's alright the Bible's outdated it's old fashioned there's some things that being old fashioned about is okay being old fashioned against sin I believe God's still pleased with it if taking a stand against sin and saying, I'm going to stick with the Bible is old-fashioned, then call me old-fashioned. But too often that's not the case. Then there's a third aspect in verse number 23. Verse number 23 says, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes. And follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. The third thing that will lead to the fall of a people. First is the denial of truth. The second is the acceptance of sin. But finally it leads to evil rulers. Rulers who, the Bible says, are rebellious companions of thieves, and love bribes. See, the truth is, often we like to look at the political status or the political party that's in government power. We like to point a finger and say, they're the problem. If we could only vote in the party of my choice, the candidate of my choice, things would be better. But the truth of the matter is, church, the problem is not in Washington, D.C., the problem is not in our state government, our local government. The problem is with you and I. You see, our leaders are nothing more than a reflection of society as a whole. We get what we've asked for. Evil rulers who are rebellious, companions of thieves, love bribes. Boy, does that sound, not sound like modern-day politics? 
Well, I didn't have to tell you. You're nodding. You already know that fits the bill perfect, don't it? Evil rulers. Well, what happened because of that? Israel faced judgment. And throughout Scripture, we know that this was a repetitious, this is nothing new with the nation of Israel. Was it not God would deliver them in a great way and they would serve the Lord as Jer- uh, Um, As Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there was a generation that served God, but then the following generation would come along and they would turn their backs on God. They would be led into captivity. Eventually they would repent, God would deliver them, and the cycle would start over again. Here we find that Jerusalem had fell or would fall. But then we come to verse number 24. We find that God decides to do a work of restoration to restore his people back to himself. The Bible says, Therefore the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, uh, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on mine enemies. I don't know about you, but the thought of God calling me his adversary should be a frightening thought. And God said, I'll take vengeance. I rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on mine enemies. Verse 25 says, and I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your draws. And take away all your alloy. That alloy was one of the main things that would contaminate silver where it could not be properly refined. The first act of restoration is purification. God said he would remove the dross. He would rid himself of his adversaries. A purification where God says, listen, I want to bring about a, really this is dealing with convicting, convicting power, conviction that God begins to purge our hearts where his people would recognize their sin and turn him, themselves back to them. Unfortunately, if you study the Old Testament and you are a, a, a student of the Old Testament, you'll find that 99% of the time this purification, this restoration came through Judgment and persecution. That's where it came from. Just like Egypt and often the Philistines, God would bring purification to his people through the judgments and through convicting them, bringing them to a place where they stopped and said, listen, we recognize that we have gone against you. We recognize that we have turned our backs on truth. And God, we want to turn back to you. God, will you be our God once again? Purification. We must... Turn back to God. Yet I wonder why it is that almost always it takes judgment for us to recognize God. 
couple weeks ago, there was a football player got injured on the NFL game, and the whole country was praying for him. Glad we prayed. But why does it take that? 9-11, which over 20 years ago, boy, don't that seem crazy? Our nation had days of prayer. But why does it take that? Why does it take conflict, persecution, trouble for us to turn to God? And yet God says, I'll purge away your dross and take away all your alloy, which really is a picture of sin. God says, I want to purge you. We need God's restoration upon us tonight. Yeah, we need a revival in America, but I'm not even talking about America. I'm talking about us. We need the restoration of God upon our life, upon our church, upon our homes, upon our families. And it may be that at the cost of that is God to purge our lives. It would be much, much better for you and I if we would say, Lord, I'm going to turn to you before he has to bring judgment to get our attention. Purification. Second of all, we see that the shame of sin was restored. Look at me in verse number 29. It says, For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees, which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. This terebinth tree, there's some that say it's elm. Some people say that it's oak trees there that are uh, in, in that area. I don't know, but the, the thought of this terebinth tree is that they were trees, they were gardens that were for false gods. If you go to Israel with us next year, if you're able to go, we will go to an area called Caesarea Philippi. I shared a little bit about it today in our meeting, but while there, there is um, an area that's where uh, Jesus said to Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are, um, uh, there are multiple uh, pagan sites there. They really believe that that's where the gates of hell were, where demons and devils could access hell through this, uh, through this cave in the side of this rock cliff. There are uh, temples there to, uh, to Pan, the, uh, uh, the god. Uh, there are temples there to Zeus and many other gods. It was a pagan worship place. And um, so there in Israel, there were many of their orchards and gardens that were made to their pagan gods. And here we find that Israel had began to take pride. They had taken uh, residence. They, they were enjoying the beauty of these pagan trees. Nothing against a tree except for that it represented serving a pagan god. And watch this. God says, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees. God said, listen, you're going to be ashamed of your sin. That's what we need. We need shame for sin. Sin ought to bother us. But the reality of it is most of us, in some form or fashion, 
have become desensitized to, to sin. We've seen it enough, we've heard about it enough, we've been exposed to it enough that it just don't bother us that much anymore. I remember I grew up in a very, um, very extremely conservative household. Um, I don't think the Amish grew up any more conservative than the way I grew up. I'm just, I'm being honest. We were extremely conservative. And I remember I finally got a public job, and I went around, and, um, you know, we didn't even use, forget cuss words, we didn't even use slang words. They were too close to cuss words. We get our soap, our mouth washed out with soap just for saying slang words. And uh, I got my first public job, and it wasn't too bad, but then I got, my next job was a construction job, doing concrete. And some of those men would cuss like sailors. Matter of fact, if you took the cussing out of their vocabulary, I don't think they'd have anything to say. And it bothered me. As a young man, 16 years old, it offended me, the language I heard. I knew that was filth, and I didn't want to be exposed to it. Well, you go... 25 years down the road and I didn't cuss I still didn't cuss but their mouths hadn't changed but I didn't even notice anymore I've got where um, you know, especially when I was working around all that I got where I would not tell anybody to watch any movie because I did one time I said you've got to watch this movie it's a good movie and they came back somebody in church they said we had to turn that thing off in the first two minutes it was full of cussing I said I didn't even notice there wasn't a word in there when I heard it I'd become so desensitized to the language that it, I didn't even notice it anymore and that's the way we are We sin doesn't bother us when, but yet when God begins to work, when true revival, revival begins to transpire in our heart, we will be convicted of our sins, but also the shame of sin will be restored. Sin should bother you and I. Does it? Does sin bother us? God help us if it, if it does not. It says they will be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden who has no water. Look at me in verse number 26, and I'll be done. The fall of the people came from their denial of truth, the rejection of God, and yet the restoration comes from conviction of God, the truth beginning to reign in our hearts once again. The second step of the fall came from our acceptance of sin, and yet the next act of restoration was the return of shame to our hearts. And thirdly, we saw that there were evil rulers ultimately brought the decline of Israel and finished off the judgment. But in verse number 26, the Bible says, and I, or I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. 
Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The righteous leaders will be restored. When we turn to God, righteousness should be in our hearts. When we, as God's people, began to live right, do right, pray right, evangelize right, disciple right, do right, love God right, when we get our hearts right, that's how we change society. Yes, we go to the polls, and I believe Christians, we ought to vote right. But the truth is, we can vote all day long. But until there's a change in our hearts, there'll be no healing. There'll be no restoration. This is the fall and the rise of a people. And so we find that thousands of years later, you and I are here far removed from the prophet Isaiah. Nowhere near Israel or Jerusalem, just in Etowah, Tennessee. And yet the same principles of God, because God does not change, God still desires to bring a restoration in our homes, in our hearts, in our church, in our lives, but it will come through conviction of sin, and it will come through us turning our hearts back to God, where we say, God, we want you above all else. That's where we find revival at. We need revival. Our church, our community, our association. We need revival. We've been asked to host our McMinn Baptist Association. They're holding, uh, hosting revival, I think three or four revivals around the county this coming year. And they've asked us to host one of the revivals for our part of the county. Later in the year, we're going to be hosting a week-long revival. And we're going to have a revival meeting but whether we have revival or not will not depend on how good the singing is. It will not depend on how good the preaching is. It will only come when we return our hearts back to our God. And I do believe that at the end of the day, this serves as a stark warning again to us that we guard our hearts that we do so that we do not allow society and the world to dictate what we hold as truth but rather we hold and stand firm upon the word of God because when we turn our hearts away from God's word when we turn our hearts away and we begin to accept the, what the world has to offer we also are in danger of the judgment of God He's a gracious God, full of mercy. But when we continue to walk down a road that is complacent to sin, we've taken a hard journey. Every head bowed, every eye closed tonight. If you need to pray this evening, the altars are open. 
But I wonder if we would pray, Lord, would you help us to guard our heart? Maybe we ought to ask God tonight, Lord, would you restore in me the shame of sin? God, I don't ever want to become complacent and comfortable with sin. The psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. That should be our prayer.